Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast on the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I am the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. In connection with our Supporting Mental Health in Schools study, we are here today to talk about a recent systematic literature review that we published in AERA Open, an open access research journal from the American Educational Research Association. The literature review explores empirical studies published before May of 2021 that researched how COVID-19 impacted the mental health of PK-12 aged youth. This article is now available for public download and is linked in the description of this podcast episode as well as on the Merck website. I'm here today with my co-authors on the report to provide an overview of the findings and discuss the key takeaways for educators. They are Dr. Jenna Darby, Research and Evaluation Specialist for Chesterfield County Public Schools, Shanita Williams, Assistant Professor in the School of Social Work and PhD Candidate in Educational Leadership Policy and Justice at Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Melissa Young, Student Services Coordinator for the School of Physical Therapy at Bowling Green State University. Thank you all for being with me today to talk about this paper that we've spent a long time working on. So excited to see it out. Um, Shanita, we'll start with you. Can you share a bit of background for this article? What led us to believe that COVID-19 had likely impacted the mental health of PK-12 students? So the overall disruption in learning coupled with quarantining and um, students being in isolation, with those factors, we knew that there was going to be some level of impact. We also had information from our previous literature review that we did supporting student mental health during and after COVID-19 and additional literature around natural disasters, for example, that really suggested that emotional well-being of, of students was going to in some way be impacted. And it didn't really matter whether or not they were students who perhaps had no direct experiences um, with COVID-19 per se, or that they had been um, themselves, you know, contracted COVID or a family member. It, it wasn't going to matter. There was going to be some lingering um, distress as a result. And so we decided that with those factors and also knowing, right, that their students were going to have this um, reduction in access to school-based mental health providers like counselors and social workers and psychologists, that there was going to be a need to provide additional information for educators with um, support, supporting students' mental health with respect to this, the impact of COVID. So when we, when we went into this project about, I guess, one year in, at that point, um, it was clear that their data was emerging, but it was still kind of in the midst of it. But there was enough information that there was empirical data that we had at that point. And so that is how we kind of formed our systematic literature review, focused on these empirical studies, really exploring the apparent impact of, of the pandemic on mental health for PK-12 age students. So we wanted to look at how has COVID-19 impacted the mental health and which students seemingly were more impacted perhaps than others. The work also was an opportunity for us to um, inform or help you know, support and assist educators, mental health providers, but also policy workers in terms of uh, the needs for students in um, areas of support, so. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when we were looking at this uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2020 that we published our first literature review on this. We were basically able to look at existing literature that wasn't directly related to COVID-19, but because things have been published at such a rapid rate since then, able to ask a more targeted question, like you were saying. Um, and Melissa, we've we've taken a really systematic approach to conducting this literature review. Can you share what was our step-by-step approach? What did we look for? Where did we start? And then where did we end up? Sure. So building on what you and Shanita talked about, you know, we kind of got an idea of where to look for and what to look for um, based on the work that we did in the report in 2020. Um, and so <clears throat> with that in mind, um, we at this time around, we actually got the help of um, the social sciences research librarian um, at Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Sergio Shaparo. I don't think that this paper really could have been done like as organized as it was without his help. So huge shout out to him. Um, like I said, you know, he really helped us get organized and he helped us create key search terms to use across the various databases that we use. Um, so we can conduct the article searches across SiteInfo, CINAHL, um, EBSCOhost, ERIC, um, the education-related databases. We use key terms. Um, obviously, COVID-19 was one of the terms that we use. COVID, coronavirus, mental health, um, various forms of mental health, mental illness, um, we were also focused, we also tried to relate our search terms to the age groups we were focusing on, so youth, adolescents, preschool, kindergarten, terms like that. Um, so on our first pass, we, we, we ended up um, with 701 articles, um, of which 138 were duplicates. Um, and these were all articles that were published before, on or before December 11, 2020. Um, and I remember at that time, it was just three of us, me, Jenna, and Shanita, because you were out on paternity leave. Um, so we split that 563 articles between the three of us. Um, and what we did was just to give each article a quick review um, based on the abstracts to determine whether or not we were going to include or exclude. Um, these articles um, and our exclusion criteria was that it was not related to mental health. It was not related to COVID-19. It doesn't include our population. Um, we also made sure that they were empirical studies and they were in English. And later on, upon discussion on that first pass, um, we also decided to add setting and context, whether or not it was school-based. Um, but really, this was more for our organization than it was for inclusion and exclusion. Um, once we did that, we met again and we agreed on the list of articles that we were going to keep. Um, we then did a quality appraisal for these articles um, and agreed that we would only include articles that scored medium and above. So on our quality appraisal tool, I think that was a three and above. Um, and we ended up with... 76 relevant studies, and after full review, we excluded an additional 35. And when we first started you know, doing this report, we knew that we were going to do two passes of, of the review. So we went back and we, we did, we basically started the process again a second time just to make sure that we um, we're a little more comprehensive this time around on the lit review. And on the second time, we identified about 532 additional papers 
um, with 103 that went through full review and then we eliminate, eliminated another 40. So at the end of the day, um, with this paper, we had a final total of 1,524 articles that we pulled. Um, and after accounting for duplicates, um, we reviewed 1,082 articles for inclusion and exclusion. Um, 179 articles that we read fully and went through another round of um, kind of a, a more detailed exclusion. And the final number of articles that were used in this paper was 104. And we do have a full diagram in our paper that kind of describes this process as well. Yep, that was a lot of literature. <laughs> and hearing you say that out loud uh, just reminds me of how much work really went into this process. And just a quick clarification, when we're talking about empirical studies, we're more or less saying studies that collected their own data, had research questions, had findings. So we didn't include other literature reviews in our literature review, for example. Um, and in the end, I mean, these, as you know, Melissa, these were international studies. So from all across the world, um, several of them from, from China, from the United States, from Europe, the United Kingdom. Um, and overwhelmingly, the methods that were used were typically surveys, which absolutely makes sense because a lot of this was rapid response research um, where surveys ended up needing to be conducted. So there's clearly a need for additional qualitative research on this. Um, but based off of everything that you just said, Melissa, we had five themes that emerged from the literature. Um, and we're just going to give a quick tour of what each of those themes were, uh, just to hopefully stimulate your interest in, in reading this full paper. And so theme one was really just about the the massive disruption that COVID-19 played in the lives of students and their families. So almost everyone experienced severe disruption to their daily routine, particularly at the onset of COVID. So just sort of flashing back to what March of 2020 was like when we were all just trying to figure out what is going on and schools were closing rapidly. Um, it, was, it was a pretty scary time. It was just this massive disruption to our daily lives. Research suggested that this disruption was particularly impactful for, for really young children who really thrive on routine. Um, students experienced isolation from their peers due to rapid school closures and social distancing measures. Those um, isolation measures were particularly impactful in a negative way for our adolescent students. Um, disruption to schooling was perhaps the most prominent aspect of the disruptive aspects or elements of COVID-19. Research showed that over and over again, where studies would ask parents and students or school-age students to, to talk about like of the things that happened to you during COVID, what was the greatest concern? And over and over again, they said that their disruption to their schooling was the most impactful for them. And there was especially some unique stress that was associated with online learning challenges and having to just learn how to navigate that and the, that, how difficult that was. There was also physical health issues that emerged, not only from potentially being infected by COVID, but also um, there was a clear impact on diet and exercise. And it's very clear that those things, those physiological aspects of our lives are really connected to the mental health aspects of our lives. So there was clear connection the research showed between disruption to diet and exercise and the mental health outcomes for our students. Um, another pretty clear uh, physical health issue that was connected with our mental health for our students sleep disruption. Studies were showing that students were going to bed later, waking up later, um, not having as much quality sleep. Um, and over and over again, research was showing that in terms of physiological impacts, the, the sleep disruption ended up having the greatest connection with the mental health ne uh, negative impacts on students. Um, and then research also showed that there was increased use of internet devices and social media. That's not surprising. Our lives just shifted online. Um, I know that uh, all of my meetings moved to Zoom, and I know that school moved to, 
to Zoom and Canvas and you know Google Classroom and and whatever we needed to do to to keep education going, um, but this increased sort of remote uh, aspect of connecting um, showed that we increasingly were using all these different things and studies often showed that this was to the point of addiction, um, particularly with internet and uh, devices. So we were seeing this more and more again with youth. It was also associated with increased stress, anxiety, and depression in school-aged youth. Um, And then interestingly, there's one Belgian study that showed that adolescents in their sample, that they were more likely to use social media if they were already experiencing high levels of anxiety. But at the same time, the research showed that the use of social media ended up having sort of a mediating or like an ameliorating effect on their anxiety. And so it wasn't necessarily an inherently negative thing that the students, especially adolescents, were increasingly using social media because they, the peer connection is just so critically important, um, especially at that age. And so we just need to make sure that we maintain that during COVID. So that first theme is really just this sort of foundational, everybody's lives were disrupted in some way. And here's how it translated into physical health, academic well-being, and then ultimately their mental health. But considering this disruption, it wasn't just students, it was also their their parents and their caregivers. So Melissa, what did we also learn? This is our second theme. What did we learn about the connection between caregiver and student mental health? So we learned that there was a significant connection between caregiver mental health and student mental health. Um, We learned that caregivers who were directly impacted by COVID-19 were more likely to experience higher levels of parenting stress, depression, and anxiety. Um, And this stress was experienced on all levels. Um, Your parents experience economic stress, right? For some families, um, they experience a loss of financial support, Um, parents or caregivers um, experience employment disruptions, um, employment stress, trying to juggle homeschooling and working from home, um, the loss of childcare for some, you know, having your kids in school full-time, that's a significant form of childcare. So a lot of parents experience stress from kind of losing that. Um, And obviously, they also experience stress from concerns over their own health and well-being and their children's health and well-being uh, from the pandemic. And in the studies that we looked at, we also learned that this had a real impact on the mental health of caregivers, as I said earlier. Um, additionally, caregivers who had children with special needs were also more likely to experience even higher levels of stress anxiety and depression because of disruption to services and support. So what all of this means for PK to 12 students was that the stress, anxiety, depression experienced by caregivers also led to harsher parenting practices in some cases. Um, So caregivers were more likely to spank or hit their children. Um, They experienced an increase in emotional abuse aggression, yelling, etc. Caregivers also found it harder to respond to the emotional needs of children under their care, and this was specifically for teenagers. Um, One of the papers described how the extended interaction and the stress of being indoors together for an extended period of time as one of the factors of such stress, um, it led to an increase in conflict um, within the familial unit. And all of this led to an increase in depressive symptoms um, within PK to 12 children as well. So we do see a real connection between stress, depression, anxiety, 
experienced by caregivers and then having an impact on the mental health um, on children because of the interaction between them. Now, having said that, there were also some positive outcomes in the relationship between caregivers and children. Um, some of the papers that we reviewed described that the increased interaction between children and caregivers actually improved relationships um, just because there was more opportunity for bonding, um, you know, spending more time together as a family when there, there really is nothing else to do in, in a global pandemic. Um, and this was evident where strong family ties already existed before the pandemic. And so that actually mitigated the negative effects of caregiver stress um, in, during COVID-19. This was one of the, I think, the really most interesting parts um, and valuable because we talk about, we don't, we often talk about students, but we don't think about that there is this space that, you know, of, you know, family and neighborhoods and communities that happen beyond, you know, beyond what we see in, a, in the brick and mortar school. And so to actually for us in this paper to be able to talk specifically about the impact that caregivers were having, I think was helpful for educators because you could have a, a student who, you know, was, you know, seemingly adjusted maybe, right? But really dealing with things that were going on at home. And so I, I think that just us highlighting this was a really valuable point in being able to say to, you know, educators, say to the world, hey, look, we have to pay attention to perhaps the mental health of the family as well. That's right. wonderful. Right. Yeah. It, it sounds like maybe you have a social work background, Shanita, and that you're <laughs> advocating for family engagement. <laughs> right. right. No, I agree. I feel like this is one of those things where it's like, I mean, I used to be a high school counselor and there's lots, I mean, I would say this with my counselors in training, you're going to be working with the families of your students too, not just your students. And so it's not surprising that there is this connection between caregiver and youth mental health, but the the methods for a lot of these studies that we worked at, that, that we looked at, they were interviewing and surveying parents to find out, especially with young children, because it's hard to collect data from really young children. And so we were able to get that kind of parent and caregiver perspective in here. So I agree, this is a, a really critical uh, finding that's worth unpacking more and maybe designing some policy around. Um, and Jenna, we know that the research showed over and over again, just in terms of like, we know that there was some impacts of the pandemic on the mental health of our students. The research really showed like what the, the breadth and depth of that was. Could you share a little bit more? What did we learn about the broad mental health impacts of COVID-19 on PK-12 students? Yeah, so obviously we won't know the real long-term impacts uh, for years to come, but these studies did help us um, really analyze the real-time impact of these researchers going out and looking at what was going on with our PK-12 student mental health during COVID during the last year. Um, and one of the big ones was fear of COVID-19. Um, the students who were able to report being fearful of COVID-19, also that was associated with other mental health concerns. Um, they were fearful of things like contracting COVID-19 or if they did contract it, that it would be really serious. They were worried about the uncertainty and how unfamiliar their situation was. Um, and then they were also really concerned, especially the older students, about economic concerns. Um, so that fear of COVID-19 was pretty broad um, and across all ages. 
Um, another big one was anxiety and depression, and it's no surprise there, but these studies consistently reported generally higher anxiety levels in adolescents than in younger children. It also reported rates of depression that were just hugely and widely um, across all studies. Um, a lot of the studies used normed cutoff scores. Um, obviously, we couldn't look at changes in depression um, in many different studies, but these normed cutoff scores were showing somewhere between 14 and 65% um, in the different samples of the literature um, of our student population experiencing depression, which is just really, really huge numbers of our students. Um, we also saw some correlations with anxiety in many studies, including things, family dynamics, um, changes in privacy once students were at home all the time, smartphone addiction, um, urban areas, having family or friends who were diagnosed with COVID, students who had their graduations affected, all of those things were related to anxiety and depression. Um, and then the last really common thing that we saw in a lot of the literature was just loneliness. Um, and it's no surprise that um, during this time when we were asking people to be socially distancing from one another and we were eliminating gatherings um, in order to stop the spread of COVID-19, that we had parents somewhere between 60 or 90% reporting that their children missed their friends or missed um, the caring adults that they had at school previously um, or their grandparents, um, their teachers. And so the big ones, obviously, anxiety, depression, loneliness, fear of COVID um, were just Big and across so many of the studies. Right. And what, what stands out to me about those findings, Jen, is that like you could say that there might be some justification for school systems to say, like, okay, maybe we should do some sort of universal screener, for example, to see like what the mental health is of our students right now. But if you were to do a screener like that and then find out that, you know, what some of these studies were showing, like 20, 30, 40% of our students are having clinical levels of anxiety. You have to really ethically be able to meet those needs. And so it almost makes sense. Like this research kind of gives us permission to maybe assume that the levels are high, right? And to just go ahead and start preparing some responses uh, based off of that. And that's just sort of the, the general um, overall student population. We know that there's particularly impacted student groups as well. And Shanita, you really dug into this aspect of the literature. What did we learn about particularly impacted student groups? Yeah, so we looked at an expansive number of uh, student populations. And so we took a look first at age. And so children who were let's say two to five and six to 18, they were experiencing pretty much similar rates of, um, I guess, upset or deterioration in, in one or more of the areas, kind of like Jenna pointed out, depression, anxiety, irritability, attention, hyperactivity. They were also feeling challenged by their inability to interact in person with friends. And at the same time, even though there was this virtual option um, available to them, they still reported decreases in emotional connection and support with friends. And that was mostly for the, the, the older adolescents. We also took a look at gender and non-gender conforming. And so female students, what we found, they experienced higher levels of depression and anxiety than male students did during the pandemic. And what I thought was really important here was there is... Um, 
I won't say significant, but there was enough literature that talked about sexual minority youth and the challenges that they experienced during this period of time. And I don't think that's always um, taken into consideration. And so that was one of the, the, the points about our paper that I think is helpful in not thinking about these um, challenges just in a very binary way, if you will. The other um, student population group per se that we looked at is racial, ethnic, and cultural differences. And so, you know, right off the bat, this idea that systemic racism was, you know, a contributor to this, these disproportionately high COVID-19 related stressors for minoritized communities. But also Black and Latinx students, they were more likely to feel very or extremely worried about the pandemic. Um, they reported disproportionately higher rates of, uh, of COVID exposure in, in one of the studies that was done um, by Raviv and colleagues. Um, Chinese Americans, there was significant reporting of online racial discrimination and also actually in-person, uh, experiencing in-person discrimination. And so in, in the racial, ethnic, and cultural differences in that, you know, student population or that I guess, topic, so to speak, you know, there's this compounding issue of COVID and then you have this other layer of um, discrimination. And then so the socioeconomic differences, we looked at students with lower SES, they reported higher levels of pandemic-related distress. And so in one particular study, low uh, parents who have low socioeconomic status, they were more likely than parents in higher um, socioeconomic status to report that their children were more demanding and experienced greater mood changes during social distancing. And that kind of ties into one of the comments made earlier about just in terms of how discipline um, was handled or just the in overall interaction based off of stress. The connection with existing disabilities or mental health issues. So youth with pre-existing mental health disorders, they were at greater risk for depression, anxiety, PTSD, suicide, and suicide during the pandemic. And adolescents with trauma, they were experiencing compounded effects. And social isolation, for example, with students who have um, experienced OCD behaviors, those things worsened. And so looking across these groups, we want to think yes, broadly about COVID-19 and the impact, but there's always these other layers that we have to consider, have to be willing to um, ask the question and to think that one step you know, further. Yes, everyone, to some degree, there's this impact from COVID-19. And for some student populations, there's gonna be this and one more thing. And so we just wanna be mindful of, of, of that. Right. Yeah. The, uh, in our first literature review that we did, we, we were talking about how the pandemic itself is disproportionately impacting like communities of color and low income communities, for example. And this research really confirmed that that extends to the mental health of these students as well. So it's just it's some clear equity issues here that we need to make sure that we're being mindful of when we're meeting the needs of students here as well. Um, and Jenna, in the part of our research, we were finding evidence of resilience and coping um, in our student population. So can you share a little bit more about what we found there? Yeah, so obviously coping can be both positive and negative. Uh, and so some of the literature reviewed some types of negative coping that became pretty common during the pandemic. Um, 
These students often reported that they were disengaged from school or people. And then a lot of them also were reporting higher use of video games, TV, um, alcohol or drugs, sleeping more, um, or just avoiding people in general, even at home. And so obviously the negative coping mechanisms were associated with um, some of those more negative um, mental health outcomes. But then on the other hand, we have these really incredible positive coping mechanisms that came out um, that were able to improve mental health by supporting our students in their sense of control, um, even at a time like during the pandemic when not much felt like it was in students' control. Um, so some of those that the research explored were things like humor or staying socially connected, um, using social media, as you talked about earlier, it could be used as in a positive way, physical exercise, technology, routine, commitment to school. Um, all these things were able to um, protect our students from some of these um, mental health problems. As you've heard us talk about, the literature was obviously just overwhelming and super clear that mental health has suffered for our students as a result of COVID-19. But some of these studies highlighted a few positive mental health outcomes that I think are just worth um, mentioning. Things like students often reported appreciating being at home and having time with their parents that wasn't able uh, or possible when they were in school all day. Um, they felt like they had more autonomy over their activities. Um, and then as Janita was just talking about our gender diverse students sometimes reported that when they were at home and removed from peer stressors and the subsequent reduction in pressure to conform to society's gender expectations, um, they were then able to report positive changes in their mental health. So there were these little glimpses in some of the literature of just um, how resilient some students were able to be and how the, the pandemic did have some positive outcomes for some of our students, although not all. Right. The research really showed the gravity of the mental health impacts of the pandemic. And I, I think this focus on resilience and positive coping uh, in the paper, I think gives it, I, I, I would say that it was, it's kind of a hopeful tone that concludes the paper, which I think is really important. Um, and we, and based off of all of these findings in our reading and analysis, we wanted to make sure that we offered some really clear recommendations for educators and policymakers to be able to take away from this. So some of the highlights here, first, it's really important to recognize the importance of the, the vast majority of mental health support that youth receive occurs in schools. Um, so students are, are school-age youth are way more likely to receive their mental health support in a school setting. Um, and so that suggests that it's really important for us to make sure that those schools are very well staffed to support the mental health needs of students. We could always use more school-based mental health personnel, school counselors, school social workers, school psychologists, um, but it's more important now than ever. Um, and to that end, it's probably gonna be necessary to train all educators in brief mental health interventions sort of our working thesis for both of these papers is that a lot of this is probably going to fall on teachers, honestly, because there's just going to be so much mental health need. There's such a, um, a limited capacity given the number of school-based mental health providers that we have that brief mental health interventions are likely going to also fall to our educators, our teachers who are with these students one-on-one -on -one, um, and in group settings every day. We need to make sure that they have the training that they need. Um, it's important to pay attention to the mental health of caregivers when you're supporting students. So if you're considering the mental health needs of your students, should also be mindful about family engagement and outreach to make sure that they're doing okay, understanding how the pandemic has impacted them, what their lives are like right now. It's a potentially a good idea to consider additional screening for mental health challenges, but just keep in mind what we were talking about earlier that um, 
that there could be some ethical considerations there as well. If you're doing universal screeners, just making sure that if you're doing these screeners, that you're also able to meet the mental health needs that your students might be professing from them. Um, we need to make sure that youth, especially teens, are able to maintain their social networks as much as possible so that if we ever are needed to do any kind of additional social distancing, that our, our teenagers especially are able to maintain that kind of that connection. But um, really all youth, it's important for them to have that social skill um, building in that social connection. And then just in general, it's really important to recognize that mental health supports in schools must be prioritized and sufficiently resourced. That was certainly the case before the pandemic. There's plenty of evidence suggests that there was rising mental health challenges in schools anyway, and the pandemic has only accelerated that. So this is something that we really need to make sure that we're making this a priority in our schools. Um, and considering all of this information that, that we've talked about and what's involved in this paper, I'm curious with everybody on this writing team, you've been working on this for about two years now with all these different writing projects we've had, including this one. What would you say your biggest takeaway is from this research that schools need to know about how COVID-19 has impacted the mental health of our students? I think for me, it's this, um, this collection and um, Melissa talked about how much literature we went through. Um, and it feels like as the masks have gone away or as we're no longer quarantining, it feels like this is so far in the past and yet these mental health impacts are not over. And this snapshot of what was going on in the world. And um, like you talked about, these studies are from all over the world. And so um, those students are still in our classrooms and are still maybe dealing with the effects of what we found in these research studies. Um, so how could teachers um, kind of remain grounded in what happened um, and not move past and think that our students are whole and happy and healthy and ready to go um, in whatever we're doing next? Because um, a lot of this will keep on having an impact for these students. And I think that the gravity shown in this study um, offers a real grounding place of we need to, to, to acknowledge what has happened with our students' mental health. Um, and it also offers the hope of, of some coping strategies and some places where resilience was really um, something that we can continue to grab onto in our classrooms. I think um, you know, and it's, it's like what Jenna, Jenna said and what Janita said earlier. Um, and I think strategies need to be very holistic. We need to take a very holistic approach when schools are thinking about, you know, the mental health of students, because it's not just what's happening in the school, it's what happening, it's what's happening at home. Um, and then students who, you know, were already at high risk before might be at even a higher risk now. And it's also well, you know, it's 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 a whole spectrum, right? We have students on on one end who um, need the most help, and then we also have students on on the other end who maybe before the pandemic are probably you know really high functioning, but we don't, you know, it's it's hard to see what's happening with them, um, what's what's going on at home, what's going on inside their heads. It's really hard to see how the pandemic has affected them mentally and emotionally as well. So I think that's you. Know, it, it, it needs to be a somewhat holistic approach um, when schools start thinking about that. And I know with, you know, it, 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 it starts to get a lot and it starts to become really overwhelming for schools to think about, right? Um, but I think that has an impact on academic success as well. And I think it's also thinking about <clears throat> what the long-term consequences and impact um, of COVID, of 
you know, staying at home or virtual schooling is going to be. Um, I think it will be interesting from kind of an academic perspective to see what happens um, with these children as they kind of, you know, get out of the P to K, PK to 12 system and start going into possibly higher education and how that affects their interactions, um, how they deal with stress away from, you know, their families who might be just a, a kind of a safety net, emotional safety net and what happens uh, when they start kind of living on their own. So it'll be interesting in the long term to see the effects of this pandemic as well. Yeah, so for me, you know, in thinking about, you know, this, this question and how far we've come, you know, I, I think that when I think about mental health, I, I think about it before COVID, right? I think about just that um, it existed and COVID-19 shined a light on existing issues, right? And so I would like for educators to know a couple of things, I guess. Um, one, know that for many students um, showing up, re-entering school buildings, just being around people, it wasn't and isn't and hasn't been enough. Right. Um, I think that there's there was this idea that, oh, well, once we open up school buildings, you know, kids will be able to engage and interact and then they'll they'll they will be, quote unquote, like better. Right. Um, and just working in schools, I, I can say that, you know, that that hasn't that hasn't been the case. And so we don't want to stop there and think that because we opened up school buildings, right, that mental health now we'll go back to what it was or, um, you know, that there will be some, some increase. The other thing is to use the material, right? We, we, we've listed recommendations, you know, we've, we've done the heavy lift with over a thousand and some odd, you know, um, papers that, you know, we've read and sifted through. It's important to kind of that gap, right? That gap between research and practice. So I would implore educators to use the resources, use the recommendations that, that, that have been pre presented. Um, and for my last point would be for um, districts to take advantage of the opportunity, the unfortunate opportunity that COVID um, gave us, right? And the, it's the opportunity to assess your school-based mental health practices, if you had some, you know, or create something new. This is, this is like a really, this is, it's a prime opportunity to, to do that. And then of course, funding. <laughs> I mean, as you said, you know, Dr. Neff, we need um, positions. And so people, you know, want to provide mental health support for students, but you got to pay for it. And so we have got to make that a priority. So out in there, out in there, I, th I think it was really um, good work. Um, what we've put together is really useful. It's helpful. And I just hope that we can get it out to um, the people who, it's who would be able to use it 
because it will be a trickle down effect. If we can get it to the educators and they actually use it, it'll get to the students, it'll get to the families, it'll get to communities. And so. That's such an important point, Shanita. And that's one of the reasons why we pursued AERA Open specifically, because it's an open access journal. So that, and that's not always the case, right? Like it's a problem with academia is that we'll end up publishing in journals that then have a paywall. So people in schools can't even always access the research. And that is not the case with this. So this is linked in the description of this podcast episode for the whole purpose of you being able to access this. Like we've talked about, we have the summary of all the literature in here, but if you're interested in digging more into any one of these studies, uh, I mean, I think the reference list is uh, like 400 references long. It's it's bonkers. <laughs> There's so much research that's included in this um, whenever you include all the, like the, the surveys and things that all these other studies were using. So I hope that you'll, like Shanita, I hope that you'll mine through this and find something that's going to be useful for you. And in terms of takeaways for me, I just keep thinking about like, this is, this is an all hands on deck situation. Um, I think we're, we're all going to be called on to do something to support youth mental health. Um, and while considering that, we also have to be mindful of the fact that our educators are dealing with considerable burnout. Um, compassion fatigue is very real. We've already seen some, some research to support uh, that we're losing teachers uh, in relation to the pandemic and the stress that they've they've had to navigate. Um, and so we have to be mindful of that. That could be an, an entirely different literature review that I hope somebody writes one day. Um, but what ultimately comes back to for me over and over again is this idea of resilience and coping. And it just reminds me of my work with my former students when I was a high school counselor, that they always blew me away with how resilient they could be. And so I hope that that's a message that comes through, although there's real gravity with the mental health needs of our students right now, that there's a lot of really um, inspired resilience that's happening with our with our K-12 age youth too. Um, and we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to learn more about this research, we hope that you will check out the full article from AERA Open linked in the episode description. You can also access it on the Merck website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects, and then clicking on our mental health study. If you would like to stay up to date on research and resources from this and other Merck studies, you can sign up for our listserv on our homepage. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Many thanks to Jenna Darby, Shanita Williams, and Melissa Young for being here today to talk about the mental health impacts of COVID-19 on PK-12 students. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation wherever you may be. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.